foreign influence operations have been going on for a long time. But modern digital technology puts a whole new spin on foreign influence operations. So states and political parties are now using digital technology for manipulating information. Welcome back to Cambridge Forum. I'm Mary Stack. We start today by examining escalating issue, which threatens American democracy as surely as any physical invasion. I speak of the serious information warfare being waged on democracy by China and Russia, largely on social media, which is coupled with our own homegrown attacks on democracy, which are ravaging the infrastructure from within. Both are combining to lethal effect to undermine and weaken democracy both in America and around the world. David Sloss is a national security expert who worked for the US government for nine years as a US Soviet arms control negotiator. He's now a distinguished law professor at Santa Clara University and author of Tyrants on Twitter. In his latest book, he provides evidence to support the very real threat he believes Russia and China opposing to the structure of democracy globally. Well, to help us understand the global picture, we are pleased to welcome John Pfeffer, our second speaker, who's Director of Foreign Policy in Focus at the Institute for Policy Studies. So let me start first with you, David. So you speak about information warfare. Why is this so urgent to you? Why does it seem so pervasive? And what actually do you mean by that term? Okay, information warfare is sort of a subset of a broader class of activities, which I refer to as foreign influence operations. Foreign influence operations have been going on for a long time. States have been doing this kind of thing for a long time. But modern digital technology puts a whole new spin on foreign influence operations. So states and political parties are now using digital technology for manipulating information. And they do it domestically. But when I talk about information warfare, I'm really talking about using that uh, social media manipulation to conduct foreign influence operations. And social media, specifically in the internet or digital technology more broadly, allows for much, much more sophisticated types of foreign influence operations. So just to give one example, one of the things that, were, that the Russians were doing during the 2016 election where they were setting up these fake accounts where Russians posed as Americans. And to the average sort of social media user, they thought they were uh, interacting with other Americans on social media. And they would do this and target particular demographics. So they'd set up an account where somebody's pretending to be an African-American to try and influence the African-American vote. Or they're pretending to be a gun lover to try to influence that vote, right? Social media allows them to disguise themselves with these fake identities. And that's a very effective way to sort of influence people if they, if the people seeing your posts think, oh, you're like me, as opposed to if we know, oh, that's a Russian agent, we would respond very differently. And what kind of money do you know if they're spending on this kind of uh, infiltration? Is it a lot of money? So uh, the Russian operation was uh, run by the uh, Internet Research Agency, and they had a budget of about uh, $12 million a year for doing these kind of operations. Uh, that's dwarfed by the Chinese budget, which, and of course, we don't have 
great figures on the Chinese budget. It's secretive, but there are estimates saying that China is now spending something like $10 billion a year on foreign influence operations, which is a huge number, right? That's sort of uh, mind boggling. And then what about the Facebook followers? What's shocking here is that you've got five large Chinese state media companies, all of which in one way or another is acting as agents of the Chinese Communist Party, and all of whom have more followers on Facebook than any of the biggest Western media companies, right? Mm. Uh, and it's important to note here that Facebook is essentially banned in China. So the bulk of these people who are basically getting information from Chinese media companies are primarily people outside of China. These uh, Chinese media companies are broadcasting, I mean, television, radio, and newspaper, but they are all publishing in a variety of different languages. China Daily in particular uh, is operating radio stations that are broadcasting in uh, some, somewhere between 40 and 60 languages, depending upon uh, which uh, numbers you look at. So they're really reaching a global audience and they're reaching a global audience not only through uh, television, radio, and newspaper, they're reaching a global audience by using US social media companies like Facebook to help reach this global audience and essentially spread what is propaganda of the Chinese Communist Party, and in some cases, a lot of uh, misinformation. We've identified the problem that China and Russia are buying into the control of social media networks here. Then we have the additional problem of the flawed domestic information system we've got with disinformation silos, which are insisting the dismantling from our own democracy from within. And then we're assisting the promotion of autocracy by things like inviting Victor Orban to come and address the Republicans in Dallas last month. I mean, this is an extreme right wing government. We won't even go into the things he said because I don't want to give any airtime to him. But you say the US government, quote, has much greater leeway to regulate speech by foreign agents on US social media platforms than it does to regulate speech by US citizens on those same platforms. So can you explain the legal conundrum here? Yeah, well, the First Amendment protects the right of all Americans to speak. So putting limits on speech by Americans on social media runs into significant First Amendment hurdles. That mean, doesn't mean the government can't do anything, but the government is under tight constraints there. The Supreme Court has made clear that foreigners outside the United States are not protected by the First Amendment. That means we have a lot more leeway to restrict speech by foreigners outside the United States. Now, the Supreme Court has also said that we have a right to hear what those foreigners want to say. Right. So the, we have to allow some ability for us to essentially receive information because the First Amendment protects not only the right to speak, but also the right to receive information. But in my view, basically limiting their access to social media is consistent with First Amendment. When I say their access to social media, I'm referring particularly to uh, people who are acting as agents of the Chinese government or the Russian government. Right? I think basically it's okay to completely kick them off of social media, and I propose doing that. But remember, there are lots of other ways we can receive information from them, because we can get information from Chinese and uh, Russian television stations, radio stations, newspapers, etc. So 
kicking them off of social media does not mean that we're unable to hear what they have to say because there are lots of other mechanisms out there. And the Supreme Court has this idea that if you want to shut down one channel of communication, it's okay if you leave open other channels of communication. Right? So that's uh, part of my basic proposal here is that I think we should ban Chinese and Russian state agents from social media platforms. Not everybody agrees that that's okay under the First Amendment, but I think it's certainly defensible under the First Amendment. Providing we can identify them, which is another whole issue. Yeah. So you speak of the useful idiot problem, which I wanted you to explain from a national security perspective, which works against this transnational regulatory system, which you're proposing. Uh, so can you explain the term and then your proposed suggestion uh, confronting? Yeah, so the term is actually a translation of a Russian term. <clears throat> but this has been a part of Russian doctrine and strategy for a long time, going back to Lenin, at least, and maybe even earlier, I'm not sure. But the idea is one way, if you want to conduct foreign influence operations in a way that's effective, what you do is find people within the system who are willing to essentially propagate your ideas. And so Russia has done this very effectively. Uh, you look at uh, the far right parties in Europe these days, they are mostly parroting a Russian foreign policy line. Marine Le Pen in France is basically doing Putin's work for him by essentially promoting Russian foreign policy ideas within France. And she gets a lot of acceptance within France. I would argue that uh, Donald Trump was doing exactly the same thing here. Donald Trump was the perfect useful idiot for Putin because a lot of his views on foreign policy actually aligned with Russian foreign policy. And so if Russia can get somebody as leader of you know, the government in the United States or leader of the government in France or Britain or whatever, who's essentially willing to support their foreign policy platform, that is tremendous, right, for them, from their standpoint. And the problem is we, you know, from a First Amendment standpoint, we can't really sort of silence Donald Trump. Now, you know, the social media platforms kicked them off social media, which I think they had every right to do and I think was a good thing to do. But uh, Donald Trump has a First Amendment right to speak in a way that Vladimir Putin does not. And so to the extent that uh, Putin is able to use Trump or others like him as useful idiots, that's very helpful for them for advancing their foreign policy agenda. The latest issue that, that I noticed um, reported in the BBC last week was that Chinese hackers have now targeted politicians and they used the Australian government as this particular example. And they created a fake news site which mimicked the BBC's and it was a really good mimic. This was caught by this proof point, which is a security uh, watchdog in the United States. So this is a third level now of subterfuge going on. So I think people should be more aware of the influences are, that are being peddled here to them daily. So maybe public warnings should be posted about the ownership of the site so that for national security and public interest, people can know who they're actually getting the information from. Is that, is that not possible? Uh, yes, that's definitely possible. Uh, let me just back up a second, day, uh, a second though and say, this infiltration by foreign agents is not a new thing. It's been going on for a while, although digital technology definitely makes it easier. 
just sort of one example. So the biggest Chinese social media platform is WeChat. And WeChat, I like to say, is like Facebook and Amazon rolled into one because it's not only a social media platform, it's also a shopping platform. And uh, you've got, uh, I can't remember the number now, but something like 300 million WeChat users outside of China, many of whom are ethnically Chinese and they like to use WeChat to communicate with their family back in China. So one thing that's been going on for several years now is that politicians in Western democracies who have large ethnic Chinese constituents uh, use WeChat to communicate with their constituents. And you got big ethnic Chinese communities in Australia and Canada and the United States. And so politicians in these Western liberal democracies are using WeChat to communicate with their constituents. What they don't recognize is China totally controls that platform. And China has used its control over the platform to effectively monitor communications between Western politicians and their constituents and to censor those communications, shut people down who say stuff that they don't like, right? So they are actually able to use the control over that platform to shut down communications between politicians in liberal democracies and their, uh, and their uh, mostly ethnic Chinese constituents. You know, that's just one example, but it's a serious problem. One other example uh, that I mentioned to you before is that this one Chinese media company, China Plus, in one year spent $20 million on lobbying in the United States until this was discovered. They were buying up ad space in both the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post and putting in paid ads that didn't look like paid ads. They weren't identified as sponsored or supported by the uh, Chinese government, right? So- Infomercials. <laughs> uh, right. So at a minimum, yes, I think most First Amendment scholars would agree that there's very little problem with basically having a mandated disclosure requirement that if it's being paid for by the Chinese government, at least there's a warning on there saying it's being paid for by the Chinese government. Same thing with the uh, Russian government. All this, this has been more of a Chinese tactic than a uh, Russian tactic. Uh, the harder thing, as you said, is identifying the covert agents. Uh, and my proposal addresses that too, but I think that is a harder problem to address to, to identify the covert agents. Okay, well, we, we set you know that uh, one of the first things Putin did when they invaded Ukraine was they shut down all the um, internet access, uh, cell phone access within Ukraine. So it made them really in an information vacuum. That, that was pretty sinister, form of warfare, as well as invading them to shut them off from, uh, from contact. So I'm going to move over to John Pfeffer now. Welcome, John. Uh, John, you spend a lot of your time monitoring what's going in the, on in the world as Director of Foreign Policy at the Institute for Policy Studies. Uh, you wrote a very compelling article on Nation of Change website last month, and the title was China Will Decide the Outcome of Russia Versus the West. And I wonder if you would care to share with us the main thrust of the argument, because I think if you ask most people on the street today, in view of the Ukraine situation, the energy problem, they'd say Russia is a much bigger threat to the world order right now than China. Well, yes, I mean, that, that probably is true. In terms of the article, basically, I was arguing that uh, from the point of view of Europeans and Americans, it would seem like there is kind of uh, complete support for sanctions against Russia. There's anger and 
and uh, outrage at Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But outside of the West, uh, plus Japan and South Korea, there isn't a lot of support for sanctions. In fact, there's almost no support for sanctions in the global South, if you look at Africa, Latin America. What that means is there are basically three camps. There's the folks who are very much in support of those sanctions. There are those, a very small camp, that are very much against those sanctions. And then there's the fence sitters. And prominent among those fence sitters is China. And how China decides it's going to get off the fence one way or the other will probably determine not only the outcome of the war in Ukraine, but will determine the future trajectory of geopolitics more generally. Tell me about how you think they're going to dictate the outcome of the war in Ukraine. I'm interested in that. Of course, Russia is counting, and Putin in particular has counted on support from China. It has touted the very close agreement that uh, Putin has uh, concluded with Xi Jinping. Uh, It expects a very tight uh, degree of cooperation, both military, energy, and economic more generally. But if you actually look at Chinese conduct since the invasion, China has been very careful uh, not to supply Russia with any weapons, uh, not to break any of the sanctions, and to preserve its relationship with both the West and the global economy more generally. In other words, what Putin had hoped for, which was China kind of very vocally and very vigorously supporting its campaign in Ukraine has not happened. Now, what that will mean down the line, hmm, that's hard to say. Uh, One indication of the position that Russia is in, because it has not uh, gotten the Chinese support that it counted on, is these visits uh, that Putin has made not long ago to Iran in order to basically buy drone technology. I mean, that's kind of remarkable. You know, Iran was, you know, purchasing was uh, Russian military hardware not sending Russia its military hardware. And then most recently news that Russia is going to depend on North Korea to supply it with Soviet era ammunition. In other words, uh, the supplier that Russia had counted on, namely China, is not coming through. And so Russia is basically scrambling to uh, get its its supplies. Now, it's not just, of course, the military. Uh, China has, in fact, supported the war indirectly by buying up a lot of Russian energy, fossil fuels. And it's not necessarily doing that because it wants to support Russia. It's doing that because it needs the energy. Uh, China's economy is growing. Uh, It's sustainable energy, it's wind and solar is growing too, but not at a pace consistent with the increase in use of energy in China. So China needs that energy. Uh, The question really is going forward, how close that energy cooperation is going to be and how closely linked those two economies are going to be. That's all uh, very interesting. We've got some questions coming and I want to pose to you, but I wanted to bring back a point that you, you said that you felt Putin helped swing the election for Trump and assisted in the rise of nationalism in Europe. Um, you quote a Guardian poll that 44% of respondents in 53 countries rate the US as a greater threat to democracy than either China, 38%, or Russia, 28%. Can we trust these figures? Where did this poll get taken? <laughs> well, I mean, I, as David pointed out, uh, the information 
efforts, efforts to influence uh, foreign elections, foreign mm -hmm. developments, has been going on for a long time. And it's not something that the, the Chinese or the Russians uh, you know, invented. And certainly the United States yeah. has been involved in those as well. And so there are a number of countries where folks feel as if the United States has been the heavy hand affecting their politics more so than China or Russia. Whether that perception is accurate or not, well, that's another question which we'd have to address country by country. But in terms of uh, the initial question, which was you know, Putin's impact on uh, the elections here and also in Europe, this is how I would distinguish between Russia and Chinese information warfare, if you will. Putin had a very, very clear idea of how he wanted to disrupt the US elections. He didn't necessarily believe that Trump could win, but he did believe that disruption of, and polarization of the electorate in the United States would ultimately redound to his benefit. Similarly, he has done a similar kind of project in Europe where he has supported Euroskeptical uh, formations, parties, movements, uh, most of them on the far right, but some of them on the left, any group that basically thought that the European Union was you know, a, a heavy-handed bureaucratic organization and they wanted to pull their country out of uh, the European Union or at least reduce its commitment to the European Union. That's why you know, Putin and Viktor Orban get on so famously, Orban in Hungary, of course. It's why Putin was so you know, supportive of the Brexit movement in the UK, uh, but all of which is designed to basically advance Russia's uh, position with respect to Europe and the United States. China, yes, and heavily invested in information warfare. Has China been involved in disrupting US elections? No. European elections? Not really. Uh, Australian elections? A little bit. I mean, China, for the most part, is mostly focused in terms of those operations in its own uh, neck of the woods. And of course, it's very interested in controlling uh, the information space within China itself. So I think there are some some important distinctions between how Russia and China approach information warfare. Let me just add, there's a, there's a great quote from somebody who used to work in the National Security Council talking about this, that uh, Russia is a hurricane and China is climate change. Russia's approach to this whole thing is very negative and destructive, right? They wanted to undermine NATO. They wanted to undermine the European Union. They wanted, as John said, to sort of undermine democracy in the United States. Like a hurricane, Russia is a very destructive force, right? China has a much more sort of long-term vision, you know, like climate change is willing to be sort of slow and patient and methodical in sort of gradually transforming the international order in a direction that is more to its liking, right? And just one, one example of how China goes and approaches this, there's a Chinese company uh, that is effectively the, I think it's Star Times is the name, it's the effectively the Comcast of Africa. They have more uh, you know, control over cable channels in Africa than any other country. And you know, they, they, uh, one of the things that they do is they have this whole offering. You want to get 
BBC on cable, you can get that. You want to get Al Jazeera on cable, you can get that. But they package it in a way that the Chinese television networks come in for free, right? The, you want BBC, you got to pay extra for that, right? So a whole lot of people in Africa who don't have a whole lot of money are getting their news from Chinese sources because, hey, that's part of their cable package. They can get that and they don't have to pay extra for it. If they want BBC, though, they're going to pay for that. So China is influencing the information environment all over Africa. And that's partly why you look at sort of public opinion polling from Africa. It's the African countries that are more favorable towards China than almost anywhere else in the world. Remember that, you know, the, especially during the Trump years, uh, the United States did not have a sterling reputation in terms of its uh, democracy promotion. Uh, but, but even let's take the question of democracy promotion. Now, of course, I support democracy. I, I promote democracy, if you will. But all, not everything that falls under the category of democracy promotion is necessarily, well, certainly not received as benign in the countries that are receiving that <laughs> promotion of democracy. And for a lot of countries, they perceive it as a uh, violation of their sovereignty. In other words, North Korea, for instance, and I'm not defending North Korea here, but certainly North Korea sees, you know, the, the National Endowment of Democracy's funding of radio stations and, uh, and other social media efforts at effectively kind of undermining the North Korean regime as a threat to, to the government. Now, there are other examples of, uh, of cases in which the United States has not really respected other countries' sovereignty in this respect. And if you flip it over, we were not happy when our sovereignty was affected by Russian manipulation of our election. So you can see why uh, there would be considerable um, unhappiness uh, among people around the world with US conduct, uh, whether it was you know, anti-democratic under Trump or even pro-democratic before Trump and after Trump. Okay, so let's um, try and think about how we might solve this problem. Somebody's asked, can we not cut off Russia or China from the global internet? <laughs> we cannot cut them off from the global internet. Uh, I mean, China has cut itself off from the global internet to some extent by building the so-called Great Firewall of China. And Russia has uh, done something similar just since the invasion of Ukraine. I mean, before the invasion of Ukraine, Russia, Russian information space was a lot more open to uh, right. outside penetration. But, you know, they are connected to the global internet and that's not going to be uh, shut down. Now, what I think we can do is uh, get Chinese and Russian state agents off of social media platforms. I think that would be a good thing to do. That would be a helpful step, would be a positive step. To make it work, you really need cooperation among liberal democracies. So in the second half of the book, I propose what I call a, an alliance for democracy, which would bring together about 35 or 40 states that are the leading liberal democracies in the world to come up with a sort of a common solution for regulating social media. It would have to be implemented domestically and each country would sort of you know, adopt its own domestic regulations. But what I'm aiming for is what international lawyers talk about as regulatory harmonization, where we get very similar regulations in all of these different countries. And I think this could be uh, an effective technique for basically keeping Chinese and Russian state agents 
off of social media platforms, that's not going to prevent them from spreading propaganda in lots of other ways. It's not going to prevent them from carrying out misinformation campaigns in other ways, but it could severely limit their ability to use social media for that purpose. And I think that would be a uh, positive and a useful step. But we got to remember that the internet is a lot bigger than just social media. I don't think we want to sort of cut them off of the internet altogether. I don't think that would be a good thing. There was an agreement uh, between Obama and Xi near the end of Obama's uh, presidency, uh, kind of an informal agreement, but one that was effective in uh, reducing basically state hacking or hackers that were engaged in, in information warfare. And you saw a significant reduction in the amount of Chinese infiltrations. And many of those were corporate, of course, efforts to steal corporate secrets. I think we can sit down with the Chinese and get some agreements that won't eliminate information warfare, but could reduce it. At the moment, unfortunately, there's not a lot of opportunities to sit down with Russia to talk about anything. But maybe at some point in the future, we can have that, that conversation. Thank you, David Sloss and John Pfeffer, for all your input and insights today. Cambridge Forum is made possible through the generosity of Herbert and Dorothy Vetter, the Lowell Institute. And thank you all so very much for joining us. See you again soon.